I mean, think about it. Starting at 10.30, after we watched uh, someone expressing their faith through baptism, uh, Dan, with his smooth and whether I say comforting voice, greeted us with a good morning and invited us to stand so that we can get into a time of this thing called worship. And with a scripture reading and prayer in the middle, we looked at a screen and sang three songs to the best of our abilities. And it's weird because it's not like we're at a concert, right? Where we sing songs that a band is playing because we want to support the band and because we love their hits. Uh, no one was crowd surfing, thankfully, right? I was in the front row. Hopefully that wasn't happening. Uh, there was no mosh pit, again, thankfully for that. And it wasn't like this massive production with smoke machines and laser beams, high-tech laser beams just shooting out at us. And just know that if this is someone's first experience in coming to church, one of their first reactions might be, well, don't see this every day. And they're just kind of standing there. And they might think it's weird at first. I mean, people have their hands up. Some people have their eyes closed. Some people maybe even move to tears. And if they're standing next to someone who does this and isn't really sure what's going on, they might be kind of creeped out. They don't see that when they go to work. They don't see that when they go to class. It's different. It's a different experience. I remember being very young, and I came across a commercial on TV that was selling this uh, live Christian album. I think it was like Bill Gaither or something like that. And I wasn't a Christian, and I didn't really have any experience in church. And in this commercial, the camera then pans over to people in the crowd, and they're just singing songs with their eyes closed and their hands are up. And I was six years old thinking, what in the world are these guys doing right now? This is kind of weird. And whether you're six years old or 26 or 46, if this is your first time coming to church where people sing worship songs, first of all, we're really, really glad that you're here. Thank you for coming this morning, right? And second, I can imagine that this may be a different experience than perhaps what you're used to. And even if you've been in church all of your life, perhaps since you were a child, you still perhaps may be wondering and figuring out what is exactly what we're doing. Now, why do I say all of this? Well, it's to say that while perhaps it may look weird from the outside or from a different perspective, there is a reason why we come here and sings the songs that we sing in the way that we sing them. And it's not just because the band's incredible. It's not just because the songs are incredible. It's ultimately because the God that we are worshiping is pretty incredible. And I can understand how it may look from the outside. But just know that if you know the God that we know, you will want to sing to him like we do, and maybe even more. And so my prayer this morning is that we as worshipers of this God, that we may grow in our worship of him with our lives. And that if you do not know this God, that you may come to know him and love him too and to respond to him in worship and in praise to him. Well, the title of our message this morning is The God We Worship. The God We Worship. Well, we have been in the book of Romans now for close to eight months, and we have read almost 11 chapters so far. And if you have been with us most Sundays, 
you would know that we have unpacked a lot of amazing truths in this book. For 11 chapters, Paul has talked about how sinful and hopeless humanity is, but that by God's grace and through his son Jesus, those who come to Jesus and put their faith in him, they will be forgiven for their sins, and that they will be saved and adopted as a child of God. That a people who were once eternally separated from the good and holy God of the universe can now be brought back together with God if they simply put their hope and faith in Jesus. And in chapter 11, Paul talks about how God has guided all of human history so that his grace and that his mercy may be magnified over sin and over darkness through Jesus and the salvation that he brings. And instead of just going straight to application of these truths, starting in Romans 12, what we see and what we read this morning in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, is that Paul just breaks out into a time of worship and breaks out into a time of praising God. He doesn't respond to these truths with indifference, or he doesn't pat himself on the back because of all of his profound writing and thinking. He just stops where he is and gives glory to God. As Paul considers our unrighteousness, God's overwhelming greater mercy and righteousness, and God's grand plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles, as he considers all of these things, he can't help but worship God and who he is. So in this passage, what does Paul praise God for? What is it about God that leads Paul to worship him in this way? Well, the first thing that we see Paul says is that the God that we worship is, the first word, bottomless. The God we worship is bottomless. Starting in verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul here isn't just saying God is really super deep in riches and wisdom and knowledge. Like he's pretty deep. What Paul is saying here is the depth of God is too deep for us to even imagine. That God's depth is bottomless. You cannot dig a deep enough hole or go high enough in the heavens to measure up to the depth of this great God. So think about this for a second. The deepest part of the ocean that we know of as of right now is the Mariana Trench, which is close to seven miles deep. It's so deep that if you placed Mount Everest at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, its peak would still be 7,000 feet below sea level. That's pretty deep. It's incredibly deep. And while Paul doesn't have the Mariana Trench exactly in mind here as he writes this, we can proclaim like him how much deeper is God and his riches and his wisdom and his knowledge? That these things that God possesses, that God is, is bottomless. It's deeper than anything that we could ever imagine. And when Paul refers to God's eternally deep riches here, he's not thinking of how much money God has. He's not thinking of how many Ferraris are in God's garage or how big God's infinity pool is or how many staircases are in his house, 
or how tricked out his back patio is with a really nice fire pit and then a TV over the fire pit so that you can watch college football on a random fall night. Paul is referring to the bottomless riches of God's character. He describes God in other passages in Romans as being rich in kindness, being rich in patience, that he's rich in his own glory, and that he also describes God as rich in mercy. So what does it mean that God is bottomlessly rich? It means God is bottomlessly good. He is bottomlessly loving and merciful. And I'm pretty sure bottomlessly is not a word. I could be wrong about that. But here's the thing. There isn't a word that can truly accurately describe how deeply rich God is in his goodness. He is vastly deeper than the deepest point in the ocean, and he is vastly higher than the roof of the heavens. And he's not only bottomless in riches, what we see here is that he is also bottomless in wisdom. If you Google who was the wisest person to ever live, Funny enough, King Solomon is actually the first result that pops up. And the funny thing about that is, first of all, Solomon did some crazy stuff in his life, right? But the funny thing is that the only reason why Solomon had any shred of wisdom is because of the eternally wise God who gave that to him. If Solomon was the wisest man in the world, How much more wise is our God who is bottomless in wisdom? And he is also bottomless, as it says, in knowledge. So think about this. The internet has 64 zettabytes of data and information. I have no idea what that means. But I can say this. It means that if you were to download the entire web and all of its information, and all of its data, there is so much information that it would take close to 11 trillion years to complete. And some of you guys are thinking, I can relate to that because every single time I ask for my MacBook to get updated, it feels like 11 trillion years. I can relate to that. If there is that much knowledge and information on the internet and in this world, How much deeper is the knowledge of our God who created and invented all of this? How bottomless is he in riches and wisdom and in knowledge? He's bottomless in these things. And when Paul considers all of these things in God's plan of salvation, he responds in worship. The God we worship is also Fathomless, the second word, fathomless. Paul continues in verses 33, at the end of verse 33, and then into verse 34, in saying, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And so as Paul considers how immeasurable God really is, he then says that God in his ways are also impossible for us to completely understand. As I've been preparing for this message, for some reason I've been studying a lot about oceans. So here's another fact about oceans. 95 
percent of the ocean in this world has not yet been explored. 95%. And it feels like we've explored quite a bit already. But 95% has not been explored. It's too deep and it's too wide for us to fully observe. And yet, with the 5% that we have explored, we're blown away by it. We're blown away by its depth. We're blown away by its size. We're blown away by the inhabitants that live in the ocean. It's unbelievable. But it astounds us even more in that while what we can know is pretty amazing, the fact that there is so much that we can't search and that there's so much that we can't know is even more amazing. And that while 5%, think about this, while 5% of the ocean has been explored on this planet, Paul just described less than 1% of God's plan in saving humanity. And with that just fraction that he can comprehend and explain, he is totally overwhelmed by it. God has had his hand over every single detail of history so that Jews and Gentiles may eventually come to faith in Jesus. Since history ever began, there needed to be countless different things that needed to happen in order for God's salvation plan to be filled. And we see many of those events taking place in the Bible. The flood, the life of Abraham, the saving of Joseph's brother Judah in the famine, the deliverance of Israel from the slavery of Egypt, their trekking into the promised land, David, the youngest son, becoming king, Israel being sent to exile and then returning from exile, a virgin mother conceiving a child, a man named John the Baptist paving the way for Jesus and then baptizing him, Jesus living a perfect life, and then one of Jesus' disciples betraying him. Prophecies left and right being made in the Old Testament and then needing to be fulfilled in the New Testament through the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus rising from the dead and his disciples then preaching this good news of the Messiah and then also being rejected by ethnic Israel, who was God's chosen people. And then as a response to Israel's rejection of the gospel, then Paul takes it to the Gentiles. All of these events, and so many more, had to take place in order for God to be magnified over everything else and for his salvation to be offered to all people. And here's the thing. It all happened perfectly according to God's judgments and according to God's ways. God has guided every single second of history for the redemption of humanity. And Paul, as a response, says, wow, how fathomless are your ways and how incredible are your plans, O oh God. Paul doesn't even ask, God, how'd you do it? Because he knows that even if God did completely tell him everything, he wouldn't understand it. And he also doesn't ask, why, did you, why didn't you do it this way? 
I would have maybe done this differently. Why did you allow this to happen? He doesn't even ask that. Paul just says, Lord, who could possibly understand you? Who could possibly counsel you? Who could possibly know what you know? God has revealed himself to us in many different ways. But even in what God has revealed to us about himself, there is no way we could ever fully understand him and fully understand his ways. If we were able to fully fathom God, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship him. But he is fathomless. He's too big for us. He's more than we can possibly imagine. And Paul recognizes this. And he worships God in response. And the other word that Paul describes, this God that we worship, is matchless. The God we worship is bottomless in his riches, his wisdom and knowledge. He's fathomless in his ways. And finally, he is matchless in that there is no one like our God. Verses 35 and 36 or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul quotes from Job 41.11 in verse 35. And I find it interesting that Paul would reference from this book, considering Job's initial response to God's matchlessness. Uh, if you are familiar with the book of Job, uh, when Job loses everything in his life in the first two chapters, uh, he and his buddies then start to try to get together to get to the bottom of why God allowed all of these things to happen. Why did God allow Job's business, Job's family, and Job's health to all be destroyed? And there are points in the book of Job where Job simply just asks God, God, what are you doing? I have lived for you, and I have honored you my whole life. Why have you allowed these things to happen to me? God, I thought you were good. I thought I could trust you. And he asks this as if God owes him an explanation and as if God was in his debt to explain all the reasons why suffering came upon him. And then if you fast forward, starting in Job 38... God responds to Job and responds to his questions. But as you see, as God responds, he doesn't give Job the answers for any of Job's questions that he asks. Instead, God just simply reminds Job of who exactly he's questioning. Asking him, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, who determined its measurements? Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Job, will you even put me, God Almighty, in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine and no one else's. And in Job's questions and accusations against God, 
God reminds Job of his power, of his majesty, and of his holiness. And so he responds to Job, who are you to question me and act like I owe you anything? And that might sound harsh, but God needed to remind Job, Job, I am God and you are not. Who I am and my ways are far beyond the understanding of any created being. And so God responds in this way and tells him, Job, I am not indebted to any created being on this earth. I am matchless in my power, in my wisdom, and in my goodness. And because, Job, I am who I am, you can trust me, and you can trust how I am guiding your life right now. And Job, as a response to that, his response is humility. <laughs> he sees him for who he is. He sees God for who he is. And he repents to God for questioning his goodness. And he says to God, Okay, Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I can trust you with my life. And as we get back to Romans 11, as Paul contemplates the matchless power of God and how he is working out his plan of salvation, Paul also responds in humility. In verse 36, he acknowledges that everything is from God, everything remains through God, and everything was created for God. That God is the source, he is the means, and that he is the goal of everything in this life. And that is the truth because he is matchless in his power and matchless in his glory. There is no other God like our God. He is the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. And he is the purpose of life. And no one else can say that. And as Paul contemplates the matchlessness of God, he closes chapter 11 with the doxology. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the God we worship. He is bottomless in his riches, in his wisdom and knowledge. He is fathomless in his ways, and he is matchless in his power and in his sovereignty. This is the God we worship, the good and perfect and holy God who is bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. Well, I believe there are a few applications that we can take from this passage uh, and I just want to say right off the bat, the purpose of these applications is to lead us to worship our God more for who he truly is. Uh, and when I mean, and when I say worship God, uh, I don't just mean here during our worship services. And when I say worship God more, I also don't mean to be more demonstrative with our worship. So I just want to get this out of the way right off the bat. The application points are not put up your hand more during worship. Or maybe two hands if you're really feeling yourself. It's not to close your eyes when worshiping, but maybe not during a song where you don't know the lyrics. Or maybe you just trust the Spirit to move, maybe you should close your eyes. None of these are the application points, just to get that out of the way. When I say worship God more, I mean more of giving Him praise that comes from your heart. 
And if that may lead you to do these things, great. And when I say worship God, I don't just mean with your voice. I mean worshiping God with your life. Not just singing songs here on a Sunday morning, but also letting your life be an outward praising of God and how you love him and how you live for him. Not just at 1030 on Sunday mornings, but throughout the rest of your life, throughout the rest of your week. Well, from this passage, I think we find a few things that can lead us to further worship. The first application is theology leads to worship. Theology leads to worship. Theology is simply defined as the study of God. And it's a word that can often be intimidating to some. And honestly, I think that's a shame. Because I think that if biblical theology was studied more, many believers would find that what they read and what they study is actually life-giving. And it actually leads to worshiping God more deeply if theology is approached the right way. And very often, theology can be approached in a wrong way. Kind of as Matthew describes, sometimes we just pursue the study of theology just for us to gain more head knowledge and for us to puff ourselves up, to have the answers to all the questions. And so we listen to podcasts and we read these books, not for the sake of growing in our knowledge of God, but so that we can grow in our own knowledge for the sake of winning arguments or debates and to be more cold and distant and be more independent as opposed to being more dependent in who God and who he is. And as we see in this passage, and we see in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul shows us that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his ways is actually what leads to deeper worship. It doesn't lead you to distance yourself from God. It should lead you to deeper worship. As Paul thinks for 11 chapters about who God is, and his plan of salvation that has been perfectly executed since the beginning of time, as he thinks about all of these things, his response to this knowledge is not a cold indifference, but it is a blazing fire of praising God for who he is. Paul went into 11 chapters of some really deep theology, and his response wasn't, <laughs> pretty cool, right? That's nice. I got my master of divinity, right? Instead, his response was, oh, the depth of our God. To him be glory forever. The study of God and the study of his word is the fireplace that warms our hearts in worship. It's not an icebox that makes us cold and that makes us distant from him. Because as you study the holiness of God. The response should be awe and the response should be praise and submission. As you study the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the response is worship because you understand that you have a Savior who sympathizes with your weaknesses and who is also the perfect high priest who intercedes for you before God. It should lead you to worship Study of God leads to worship of God. Biblical theology leads to further knowledge of God and to further admiration of God. And so I encourage you, I invite you this morning, do not be intimidated to study God's word. 
but come to the fireplace of God's word so that your heart may be warmed for him. When I went to seminary, I was terrified of theology. And because of that, I was scared to study God's word. But as I was blessed with a season where I got to study the Bible more intently like never before, I realized two things. That studying God's word is something that anyone can do. And the more that I studied God's word, the more I loved God. Because I got to know him more. And the more that I got to know, the more I got to love. The more I loved him. And that is still the case to this day. Study of God leads to worship of God. And this is the part where I promote the training program that we have here at West Park. In the training program, you will be studying theology and you will be growing in knowledge of God for the purpose of you growing in your love for God. And this program will also help you in other areas, such as spiritual disciplines and learning to engage the culture with the gospel, with your beliefs. And I want to encourage all of you, if you haven't taken it or if you want to take it for a second year, take the training program this fall. Again, the registration deadline is next Sunday, May 14th. This is a really great program for you to grow in your knowledge and in your love for God. But I will just say this. Whether you decide to take the training program or not, I urge you either way, grow in knowledge of God, and as a response, let yourself grow in admiration for God. Because you can't worship God for who he is without actually knowing who he is. Engage yourself in the reading and studying of God's word and let your heart be warmed by the truths of God and who he is. The second application is mystery leads to worship. Mystery leads to worship. Paul talks about God's judgments being unsearchable and his ways inscrutable or untraceable. And he worships God in response to his mysteries. I want to ask everybody in here this morning, how do we respond to things in life that we don't understand? I can speak for myself. Uh, most of the time, I respond to most mysteries in life with frustration, to be honest with you. There's not a lot of things in life that are more mysterious to me than calculus. And when I took calculus in college, I did not respond by saying, oh, how complex are your ways, oh God. I responded by tossing my textbook across the room and then going for a drive to let off a little steam. What is that for you? Maybe it's putting together a bookshelf or a TV stand because those also are like calculus or like studying Hebrew. Or maybe it's stuff going on at work. Or maybe it's the mystery of a personal suffering in your life and there's no clear answer to the purpose of it. It's a mystery. And perhaps the response, maybe it's frustration, or maybe it's discouragement. And as we've seen with Job, and as we see here with Paul, we see that God and his ways are impossible for us to completely comprehend. And there are some passages and there are some circumstances in our lives where we just can't understand God's ways in them. 
And we see here that there is actually room to be comfortable with the mysteries of God instead of responding to those mysteries in frustration. There's room to be comfortable with mystery, to be content in not having all of the answers. And the reason why we can worship God in the face of mystery is because we can trust in who he is and how he has already revealed himself to be. God has revealed himself across the pages of time to be infinitely good and wise in many different ways. And we see that in Romans in the plan of salvation through Jesus. And while we may not fully understand everything about God and who he is and what he is doing, we can trust that he is working in the mystery. We can trust him with the questions that we can't answer. We can trust him and we can be comfortable with the mysteries of God because we can be comfortable with God and who he is and how good he is. He is bigger and he is better than we can imagine. And this overwhelming God is worthy of our praise, even especially in the mysteries. The third application is humility leads to worship. Humility leads to worship. In many ways, this connects to mystery leading to worship, but it's different in that while mystery leads us to be content in who God is, humility leads us to be content in who we are. It's not just that God is impossible for us to completely fathom. It's also that we are too small and too finite. Paul in verses 34 through 36 brings our limitations in perspective. There's no one who could possibly counsel God. There's no one who knows his mind. There is no one who can say, the God of the universe owes me something. And there is no one else who can claim that everything in this world is from them or through them and to them. No one else can claim these things but God. And so it's not just that God is who he is. It's also that we're not God. And so there is a humility that comes with worship. When we worship God with our voices and with our lives, we are placing ourselves under his kingship and we are leaving behind any crowns that we could possibly have in this world. When we give ourselves to God, we are acknowledging, Lord, you are my God, you are God, and I am not. You are worthy of all praise, you are worthy of all honor, and I belong to you because my life is not my own. God, my life is yours. There is a humility that comes with worship. And we lay ourselves down because he is God, he is who he is. And we are not God. Humility leads us to worship him. And the final application is looking leads to worship. Looking leads to worship. God is bottomless, fathomless, and matchless in all that he is. And we worship God for who he is. 
when we have our eyes and when we have our hearts set on him and who he is. And as Paul here has his heart fixed on God, he comes to God in worship. Look at how deep, look at how unsearchable, and look how almighty God is, who from him and through him and to him are all things. As he beholds his God, he responds in worship. Looking to God leads to worshiping God. I wish I could say I do this well. I wish I could say that I look to God more often than I look to other things. But very often, my heart is not looking to God as it should. Often my heart is focused on myself. And it's either on myself with how good I might think I am in a certain moment, are often how sinful that I know that I am and how sinful that I know that I can be. Very often, my mind can go to Romans 1 or Romans 7, thinking about how unrighteous I am and how much I deserve condemnation. And in those moments, which is way more often than I like to admit, the thought of worshiping God isn't even close to my mind. It's more like discouragement. It's more like despair. There are Sunday mornings where I just simply stand and I can just look at the lyrics on the screen and think to myself, how can this apply to me? How could such a good and holy God possibly want to hear from someone like me right now? Or maybe it's not you, and maybe it's not your sin. Maybe you see your sufferings. Maybe we see our sufferings and think, does God even care? Is God even working in my life right now? And we can get into such a deep and dark place where we feel like God is miles and miles away from us. And worship does not even come to our minds. And maybe that's some of us this morning. Maybe that's some of you this morning. And let me ask this morning, what do we do in those moments? How do we get through those moments? Well, from what we read in Romans and what we read all throughout Scripture is that the answer, the solution, is not to keep looking at ourselves. It's not to say, eh, give yourself a little bit more credit. You're better than you think you are. The answer is, is that instead of looking to ourselves, the answer is to look to Jesus. To look at God, to behold our God. And instead of staying in Romans 1 or Romans 2 or Romans 7, we need to look and behold our God for who he is, as it says in Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 8. And to look at the truth that because of our gracious God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To dwell in the truth that God in his sovereignty has led us back to him through Jesus and that there is nothing that can separate us from him. To not look at ourselves and to not look at our brokenness, but to look at our bottomless and fathomless and matchless 
God. Because while our circumstances may change, while we may be going through difficult seasons of our life, the beauty is our good God never changes. He never changes. His goodness is, his mercy is new every single morning. And so whether you are having a good morning or a bad morning this morning, just know God is good in all of those. He doesn't change. And even when our sin and our sufferings are right in front of us, we are still able to worship God because while we are struggling, God is still good and God is still in control. And he is working even when you can't see it. And God's faithful love is still over you and it hasn't changed even when your day changes. Your status in Christ hasn't changed. You are still a child of God, whether you are in a season of suffering or whether you are in a season of peace, whether your sin is in front of your face or whether you feel like it's far away from you. God is still the same and his mercy over you is still the same and he is still worthy of our worship. Not just of our voices, but from our lives and from our hearts. And so may I say this morning, if you are in a place of condemnation or a place of despair because you are looking at your sin or your sufferings, look to God and see that his goodness, his holiness, and his mercy and his purpose for your life has not changed. Jesus Christ has not changed. And so because God has not changed with all of these qualities, because he hasn't changed since the beginning of time, he's still worthy of your worship. He will always be worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your tears. He's worthy of your joy. He's worthy of your life. And so whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, I encourage you this morning, look to Jesus. See his sacrifice on the cross for your sin. And if you see him for who he truly is, the true response should be worship. It should be worship. Well, I'm going to ask for the worship team to come back up. Well, the church I went to in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, had this practice that before the time of worship began, they asked the congregation to be still for about 30 seconds to a minute, just to kind of sit where they were. And it was to use that time to quiet their hearts and to gather their thoughts in preparation to worship God. And after that time, someone would come up and would read a passage of scripture that called the people of God to worship. And so I would love for us to do that this morning. Uh, the worship team is going to play a little background music. And I would like for us to take, honestly, 30 seconds to a minute. And that may feel like a trillion years, like we're about to just download 64 zettabytes of information. It feels like it's going to be eternity. But I want us to take this time for our hearts and our minds to catch up with where we are. To contemplate who we are and then to respond by contemplating on who God is in his mercy and his goodness. And I would like for us to quiet our souls for about a minute. I will read this passage that we read this morning. And then we will close our time with worship. So let us take 30 seconds to a minute and just quiet our souls now and bring ourselves before the Lord.
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen.